This feature is brought to you by Essex Ham. Hi, this is Pete, M0PSX. And this is Kelly, M6KFA from Essex Ham. On the 12th of December 2015, guest speaker at the Waters and Stanton Christmas Open Day was meteorologist Jim Bacon. Best known as a TV weather forecaster on the BBC and Anglia TV in the 80s and 90s, Jim is a licensed radio amateur with a fascination for radio and the weather. We caught up with Jim, callsign G3YLA, to discuss his interest in the hobby. Before we got started though, I couldn't resist asking Jim for a quick report on the conditions in Hockley. Well, the sun is out, but it's above the clouds and you just can't see it. But um, quite bright, this rolls of strata cumulus cloud is what we've got. We drove through some rain on the way down here from Norfolk, so uh, the front is active in parts of uh, the eastern counties. But I think the worst of it is probably away from here for a little while, so that's good news. Wow, a live weather forecast, I'm honoured. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you're here today at uh, Waters and Stanton, and uh, I believe you're doing a talk on something. What are you talking about today? Uh, yes, I've been asked by Justin to come down and do a talk about weather and propagation, which is a, a pet subject of mine, and I've been involved in that because of a, a foot in both camps, so to speak, for decades. So um, I've just come along here to uh, chip into the party. Uh, good to see a lot of people here. It's a very uh, busy shop downstairs isn't it we've found a little quiet hidey hole to do the interview but my word there's a lot of people downstairs so i have to ask then obviously you're, you're very well known from your appearances on tv and the weather forecast and the med office and everything else what's the connection for you between amateur radio and uh, and that side of things it's almost that the two things started at the same time in my late teens uh, my twin brother who's also licensed as g3wrj he was taking his rea as it was then and got on the air at the time when I was perhaps more interested in fishing, and I used to do a lot of fishing in the Fenland rivers, and eventually enough of this amateur radio malarkey wore off, and before I knew it, I was doing my REE as well, and uh, I've, I've just loved the hobby ever since. It's one of those hobbies which for me is, is brilliant because you can go into it as far as you need to or just skim the surface at times, and it won't be the same throughout the whole of your, your professional or hobby life. You'll dip in and out of bits, and, and amateur radio is big enough to absorb all sorts of specialist sub-interests. So there's, there, what people say very sort of glibly, there's something in it for everyone. But actually, in amateur radio, there really is. And there are so many different bits. It could be construction, it could be contesting, it could be morse, it could be propagation, it could be cutting-edge technology, it could be computing, it could be all of those things. And you'll wax and wane in, in, in and out of those different parts of it. So what's your interest at the moment? What, uh, what amateur radio stuff uh, floats your boat? Well, uh, operating-wise, I've pretty much always been a CW person, so I, I really enjoy CW. 95% of my contacts are on the key. I'm one of the GB2 CW instructors up in our club. I also am particularly interested in these SDR radios, which I got into when I built a, a soft... I, I did a lot of homebrew back in the day, as we all did, before the commercial market expanded. And uh, when I had some time off work, um, when I was laid up for a while, I bought one of these soft rock rigs. Now, I don't know if you've heard of those, but they're a, a very accessible kit, which allows you to get on, say, 40 metres with what is an SDR receiver. 
And, and once you start looking at that, you realise what a whole new operating style is opened up to you. You can see individual signals, you can see a whole segment of a band at the time. You can also, uh, they're particularly good, I'll tell you later on perhaps about that, but they're particularly good for working DX pileups with CW because you can see where the DX station is, you can see where the pack is, and you can see who they've last worked, and you can. I, it's just, it's just fantastic. So it's greatly challenging. So, so this soft rock kit got me into thinking of SDR. And many years ago in my professional world, I was involved in mainframe computers as a programmer at Bracknell on their supercomputer. So, so I've got a sympathy for the ones and the noughts, and. Uh, this made me think, yeah, I'll do that. So I got onto the Soft Rock and then moved on to the Flex 3000. And I've just only a couple of weeks ago um, come here and uh, collected a 6500, the Flex 6500. And one of the reasons for that is because you can open up four separate slices of band uh, segments at once. Now, you might say, Surely you've got one pair of ears, why do you want to listen to four different parts of the spectrum? And, and the answer is this, with one of my other particular interests, which is sporadic E, that's a phenomenon that moves up in frequency as an opening develops. It's one of these magical things. If I can capture sporadic E for you, I would say you'll be listening to a band where it's quiet. It's like 10 metres is at night. You know, there's no signals, and during the minimum of the sunspot cycle, no signals, just the noise floor. And then all of a sudden, it's as if the whole band has opened up with activity. Now, that's an exciting thing to have happen anyway. But the interesting thing is, it starts on the lower frequency HF, very high HF band, like 10 metres. And then you'll find if it gets really good, it'll appear on 6 metres. And then if it gets better still, 4 metres opens up. And finally, the holy grail, you'll get sporadic E signals on 2 metres. Now... If you've been used to listening on two metres and working locals 20 miles away and suddenly you're hearing Italian stations coming through, that is a most incredible feeling. And it comes and goes as quick as that. So having four slices in the receiver for me made the choice for me in a way because I can watch those four segments at once and see the sporadic E going up in frequency as the opening strengthens. Wonderful. Do you do a lot of sort of prediction of how the bands are going to be? Can you use your, your meteorology knowledge to, to do that? Yes, you can. Clearly the ionosphere is a separate issue. So the F2 layer propagation on the HF, the traditional HF bands, for example, one tends to sort of set to one side in, in relation to weather. But the VHF bands do have a remarkable ability to link in with weather. And, and one of the features of that is that there are two really clear modes, or propagation modes, which are very much affected by weather. One is tropo, which we call tropospheric, a shortened form of tropospheric propagation. And the troposphere is the name we give to the lowest bit of the atmosphere above the Earth, which is the bit where the weather belongs. And the lowest bit of that is where tropo lives. And it's all to do with what happens when big areas of high pressure form contrasts of moisture and temperature quite low near the ground, up to about three or 4,000 feet. And when a high forms, it makes one of these contrasts, which when you get into the physics of it, what it does, it affects the refractive index of the air. And it's the same principle as happens when you put a pencil in a beaker of water and it appears to bend, same sort of thing. So. You get that going on and suddenly you find that your two metre signals uh, 
can, and, and particularly the higher bands, like 70 centimetres and 23 centimetres, can get trapped in this zone where there's a rapid change of, of temperature and humidity and be ducted with very little loss for not just 50 miles up the road, or kilometres as we talk in VHF terms these days, but actually thousands of kilometres. And um, in one of the recent, I think it was in the recent two-metre cumulatives, I worked down to the south of France near the Pyrenees and that was a tropo duct that formed. Most amazing. And it sat in there for the whole of the contest where sporadic E is very flighty mm. and, and that's a different thing altogether, different time of the year as well. So, so that's one weather link. So as a meteorologist, I'm looking for big highs coming in. I'm looking for lows being away from our paths that we want to work. I'm also looking to be sure that the high is placed in the right part of the chart because it's no good having a big high over Scandinavia if you can't reach it without going through part of a low first. So what you have to understand is that with tropospheric propagation you don't want to be too far away from the high, you don't want to be right in the middle of it either. You might think, oh, let's go straight in the middle of the high. But what happens is this wonderful temperature contrast that we work so hard to make that, that gets the moisture contrast as well and, and bends the radio signal, that gets lower and lower as you get closer to the centre of the high. So there comes a point where your wonderfully shaped signal in the duct is going along with very little loss, but gradually, if you looked at it, it's getting closer and closer to the ground as you go to the middle of the high. And eventually it'll just dive into the ground and, and your signal will drop out of the duct and that will be it. So that limits the range. So if you want long range on tropo, go round the edge of the high. It's like drawing a tangent round the edge of a high. You just go along a straight line like that. Wonderful. And then sporadic E. Well, sporadic E, you need to keep your nerve with sporadic E because that's not something that's easy to do, but it's something that's easy to do if you're lucky enough to be there at the right time. So what do you need to know? Well, you need to know whether something in the weather world is going to affect sporadic E. Now, sporadic E is way up there. It's above 100 kilometres, 120 kilometres to about 90 kilometres above the ground. The weather only goes up to 25 kilometres or so above the ground at the very most in the tropics. So, big gap between the two. What communicates information from the weather to the uh, E region? Well, it turns out the atmosphere isn't something that has these wonderful, neat boundaries. That, you know, you don't have a troposphere, then there's a flat line and nothing, and then you have a stratosphere, and then you have... Well, there is a line, there's a, there's a tropopause, but, but the point is, wave motion in the air goes all the way up to the top, and that wave motion can make ionisation in the E region clump together to give you a sporadic E patch. So what makes the wave motion? Turns out, for a long while, everybody thought it was thunderstorms, everybody thought it was meteors, everybody thought it was all sorts of, uh, you know, the red sky at night world of, of sporadic E forecasting. It was full of all these wonderful ideas. They all had some merit. But over the last few years, the work I've been doing has kind of... If I had to pick one thing to look for, I'd say look for jet streams. Find out where the jet streams are. 90% of the openings on sporadic E will have gravity waves, this wave motion I mentioned, caused by jet streams. It's knowing which jet stream will do it, 
A jet stream is a long winding current of very fast flowing air. So it's what makes it do it there and not further up the jet stream. So a lot of work I've been doing in the last few years has been trying to nail whereabouts the jet streams are most sensitive to doing this. There was um, a series of blogs I put up on the RSGB's uh, discussion forums. So if you go into the main page of the RSGB website, go into forums, go to the radio propagation questions page, and there you'll see blogs that I've put up since um, May of last year. And in the summer season, I write a, a little commentary about where I think the jet streams are going to be and what the significance of one jet stream is compared to another. So straight away you know where to point your beams to get the sporadic E. As it happens, sporadic E is so all-powerful, you practically don't need to point your beams anyway. Put a screwdriver in the back. But you do get better better results from having some sense of directionality. Anyway, point is, it turns out to be very closely linked to weather. So there's two things that are weather and radio linked. Uh, that's enough for me, as well as doing the day job. I'm quite busy looking at those two things. But it's fascinating. So anybody in a hobby... We'll always find little avenues to go down which make it interesting. For me, it was in, in at the moment, it's CW, it's SDRs, and it's propagation. And that's got me plenty to do. There is so much to do. And do you know what? You've explained so well. I've never fully understood sporadic E. I've been trained, I've been at several training courses where it's been explained, I've been to presentations, but... Wow, okay, I get it, and I now get that link to the, to the weather as well. Brilliant. And uh, you say you, you publish some, some information up on the RSGB to help. If someone is looking to try a bit of sporadic E, um, just remind us where they could possibly uh, go to get started. Okay, well, the first thing you want to do is, is hang your sporadic E hat up over the winter because you pretty much don't get much to, to, to make it worth sitting in the shack for hours and hours for. You get very rare openings in December and January but extremely rare. So what we want to do is to say, minimise wasted time for sporadic E. First thing we say, May to August. So that gives you four months, May, June, July and August, to concentrate your efforts. The second thing we know from, from reports, and this is where amateurs are so valuable, all the logs that come in over the years, I mean, it builds up. It's a bit like when you look at club log, for example. You can see what time of the day the path is open to a DX station. Same is true with logs for sporadic E. You can see that, as it turns out, it isn't a single peak that follows the sun. It's actually a double peak. There's a peak in the morning and a peak in the late afternoon. So if you check at about 11 o'clock GMT in the summer, in the morning, and when you get home from work, instead of going out and cutting the lawn straight away or having your tea, put the rig on and late afternoon, sort of 16, 17Z to about 19Z uh, GMT, that will be a good time just to switch the rig on, see what's out there. And of course you can look on these DX maps and all the various websites that give you um, ON4KST. Loads of good websites for finding out which bits of the band are working and in which direction. And then the other thing you can do is to maximise it is to say, um, go onto the RSGB website, go to their main page, go to forums, go to radio propagation questions and answers and look at the blog for that day and you'll have a, you'll have a map which is from one of the forecast models we use in WeatherQuest, the company I'm involved with up at the UEA. And we put those up every day and it's got four maps, one for midnight, one for 6am, one for 1800 and so on. So you can see how the jet stream is going to move during the day. And that will capture all of the essential working tips you need. You won't have sporadic E every day, 
But on six metres, you'll quite often have some sporadically, somewhere that you can point to. Thanks very much to Jim Bacon, G3YLA, for his time talking to us about Tropo and Sporadic E. You can follow Jim on Twitter, at WQJim. And if you enjoyed this feature, you can also see Jim discussing the best ways to improve your DX on episode 13 of TX Factor at www.txfactor.co.uk. For some handy links, please go to www.essexham.co.uk forward slash Jim Bacon. This feature was brought to you by Essex Ham, supporting amateur radio in Essex.